0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Infectious. Today you're going to be listening to a live interview I held with two great infectious disease doctors, uh, mostly for the community in Orlando, Florida, especially the Muslim community there. It was really informational, and I hope you get something out of it. So, let's get into it. Uh, My name is Suzanne Zaidi, Fah Zaidi. Over the past year and a half, I've been, uh, I started a podcast where I've been interviewing doctors, school teachers, pretty much politicians, anyone has anything to do with COVID-19. I've been also running vaccination drives to get more people vaccinated and educated about COVID. And right now is kind of an important time since now we've had boosters are suddenly released. We're seeing people get their third vaccinations. Um, we're seeing our society start to get more normalized. Uh, we're setting up systems for the future. Uh, we're seeing schools reopen. We're seeing mass mandates being being lifted. And because of that, um, both the people at the event here and people who are going to be listening to my podcast, Infectious, um, I wanted to get some questions answered. We've had a lot of questions submitted, and I'm sure people here are going to ask questions as well. Um, So I want to introduce our two infectious disease doctors, uh, Dr. Samuel Bosch, infectious disease doctor from Rockledge, Florida, who's been on the front lines of this pandemic since its beginning, and Dr. Patricia Cuota, infectious disease doctor for Orlando Health and the site director for infectious disease. At Orlando Regional Medical Center, who's played a really important role in Orlando's COVID response. Um, first, thank you guys, both of you guys, so much for being here. I really appreciate it. I know you guys is valuable. First question, um, let's just start from the basics. How do boosters and vaccinations actually work? Um, like what's the scientific basis for that and like what's the difference between a, a normal vaccine, your initial COVID vaccine and a booster? I think I'll go first.
1: So as far as I understand your question, how do Boosters work and how are they different from the regular vaccines? Okay, so booster, you know, the name kind of defines what it is. The purpose of the booster is to boost your immunity, to put it in simple terms. It is no different from the first and the second shot of the vaccines that you took. It's exactly the same vaccine, the mechanism of action is exactly the same. But because there has been some concern that the antibodies wean over time and your immune response starts to become less, the CDC has uh, implemented this recommendation, especially for the vulnerable, to boost their immune system. And so the mechanism is the same. You will get the vaccine and it will help you produce more antibodies and kickstart your immune system against COVID-19.
0: Now, that's a really great explanation. Um, and so like, what effect does that actually have like when you give someone a vaccine, right? Because people are worried about side effects. How does that affect like pre-existing conditions when you're adding these, like, giving people these antibodies? Uh, Dr. Cuoto, sorry, sure.
2: yeah, i can Yeah, I can build the... So that, that was an excellent explanation. I, I see boosters as a friendly reminder for the immune system of this is how the bug looks. Um, so, so the body is able to make even more of a response and, and get ready for an attack. In the case of an attack, um, it, it is true. There's no different than the initial vaccine, but some patients can have more side effects because they already have memory of having seen this, this, this piece in their body. So... The side effects of the patients are really very variable. So some people, they, they, they really don't, don't even feel it. Um, the most common thing is always, you know, like the discomfort on the arm. And, and we used to have that with the, with the flu shot before, uh, but it, it, it can vary. Some people that make more antibodies and they have a, a bigger response, they get more side effects. Some patients get fever, some patients have a headache, some, some people don't feel very comfortable. For a couple of days, but they have been surprisingly uncommon and fairly benign compared to to other vaccines.
0: Yeah, and in terms of like some people can worry about like long term pre existing side effects. Mm -hmm. Have any been found?
2: I think that I have had a couple of patients that complain of of discomfort on the arm and sometimes on the on the armpit for a while. the The lymph nodes that are, are are part of the body that get the first, um, the first signal from the vaccine, they can get swollen and kind of agitated. They don't like to to have to deal with things that are not ours, and they can have the swollen lymph nodes for a while. It it's more of a news. It's uncomfortable for. For some, Um, there are some vaccines that have had a more severe side effects is, is, is very uncommon, but in some uh, patients that have had uh, the Johnson and Johnson vaccine um, in young, specifically young, young uh, gentlemen, there have been cases of all clots, but this is not, not even with the boosters. This is with the regular series, the the initial vaccine Um, overall, they're very well tolerated. And, and I, I think that I have way more complaints of with long COVID or very prolonged COVID. It took them a long time to recover rather than with complaints of, of sequelae from the vaccine itself.
0: Um And Dr. Abbas, anything to add to that?
2: No, I think that
1: was uh, perfect.
0: Yeah. And we've also had a lot of people ask uh, for about people like people with pregnancies or people who want to get pregnant in the future. Um, if they are pregnant, should they get vaccinated while they're pregnant and if that has any effects on pregnancies?
1: Yes. Um, so vaccine is recommended in pregnant women because we have seen mortality and like any viral infection, pregnancy is kind of a vulnerable state. So you can have a more severe illness and you can affect the baby and the mothers. So we are, uh, we have, you know, our OBGYN, they have reported no problem and no side effects in pregnant women. And it is a very safe vaccine for pregnant women. And even those women who want to conceive, I know that there were conspiracy theories about affecting fertility and whatnot. And those are all just that, conspiracy theories and misinformation. There is absolutely no effect on fertility. And in fact, if you were wanting to get pregnant, you really don't want to get the virus when you're pregnant and affect your baby as well. So we are a hundred percent supporting uh, vaccines which are
0: safe in pregnant women. Um, but, uh, Dr. Kodit, can you add to that or? I have, okay. that,
2: that is excellent. I have, I have unfortunately witnessed m- many ladies these vaccinated ladies um, with, with severe COVID that, that required to be admitted. And we, we, we've had to take the babies, the, the ICU for children for, for newborns. Uh, this, this premature was at some point filled with premature babies that just because the ladies were unable to, to breathe at some point and they had to be delivered prior to, to what they were planned. Um, I, I agree. There's really no, I cannot come up with a, a possible physical explanation or biological body explanation for these vaccines uh, to be problematic for, for pregnant uh, people or for for fertility in the future. Um, if anything, you would like to protect that patient population. It's, it's very difficult to see a lady that has already children that is now advanced in their pregnancy. And, and it, it, it's, a, it's a difficult picture to, to, to leave. Families suffer quite a lot. Um, we, 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 we've had some losses of young ladies um, that at this point, it has become something that is preventable. I I did not see, I did not have a case, not even one case of a pregnant lady that was vaccinated that, that uh, was admitted to the hospital severely ill. Um, I did see a lot of young, very young ladies. For, for me, 20s, 30s is very young. And it's like a flower, the vision population that you really want to always protect. Um, it's very scary when you have a baby to take a, a decision like that. You always feel that you're you're responsible, and it's always a scary thought of having to put something in your body. But this is one of those few things that is is very, it's very good, very benign, very well designed, very very well crafted. It, it will not enter the placenta. It just, gives the instruction to the mom. And, and furthermore, the mom can make antibodies and protect little babies because so far we couldn't really give small babies um, any, any uh, vaccines. So for a little bit, they will have some protection from, from their mommies. So there is a, an additional benefit to that. Cool.
0: And um, like, like we've pretty, pretty clearly established at this point that the side effects of vaccination is pretty limited. Um, but some people are still hesitant to get the vaccine, and like a lot of, there's even some medical professionals who are either against the vaccine or against the vaccine for children or pregnant women. And why do you think some of those fears exist?
1: Okay, so, you know, um, vaccine hesitancy um, has a lot of factors when you look at it, Fazan. It's, um, so if you really wanted to uh, divide it into scientific and non-scientific reasons why people are hesitant to get vaccines, at this point, if you are a scientist, and if you have seen the deadliest face of COVID-19, which uh, you know we have had that uh, privilege to witness, then you know that what is the bigger evil here? What are you really trying to protect? So there is really, I don't understand any scientist having an objection to this vaccine because it has saved lives and it is safe. So I really don't understand that, whether why this unwillingness to, you know, and this is, I would have to say, a non-scientific response looking at it as a scientist. Now, because the whole world is not a scientist and we all have our own biases, we all have our limited understanding and, you know, a very important task which the media has played and who we get our information from is one of the things which kind of um, uh, makes us make good or bad decisions. So vaccine hesitancy comes with some, uh, there are some political um, you know features to it that people who um, have some political beliefs about it, then there is a lot of mistrust about healthcare professionals and mistrust about the government. And so um, there is an absolute refusal to, to regain or rebuild that trust. And so that is a matter of the heart. I don't consider it a matter of a rational mind. So uh, I think it's fear-based. All vaccine hesitancy is rooted in fear of the vaccine. And so it is with time and with, you know, some people just were concerned about how fast the vaccine came out, you know, how the speediness of the whole process so some of those objections have been kind of scientific because we have a way of you know authorizing vaccines and this was a pandemic and there was emergency authorizations needed so some people were objecting to that that we have not run it enough and we didn't really have time because you know people were dying right and left so um, as far as these concerns are concerned I just want to make a point before the vaccine came in December, I attended a webinar um, with a vaccinologist from um, John Hopkins, and it was an eye opening webinar about the vaccines. And what she basically said is that when all of us vaccinologists who don't have a political agenda, we are scientists, when we were thinking in the future about vaccines, we would all say to ourselves that the messenger RNA vaccine is the best technology and is the vaccine of the future. But they always thought we would never have funding, we would never have time, and we would never have that sense of urgency to make these vaccines. However, in 2003, when we had the SARS-CoV-1, now 2003 is a long time ago. When we first identified SARS-CoV-1, they identified the spike protein. Since then, the vaccinologists have targeted the spike protein. They have studied it well. So this is really not an overnight process. And when the SARS-CoV-2 came, it was exactly the same spike protein and they knew exactly how it was made. And therefore they could devise this messenger RNA code. And you know, they call it the vaccine miracle of 2020, which is something so scientifically mind-blowing that it breaks our heart when people who truly are scientists who've created it with so much um, care and conviction and knowledge and a history of a detailed and people treat it as if it is uh, something which is completely uh, unread um, or studied. or So, so I, I just need to say that this is one thing which comes uh, against uh, those who are hesitant, that they think that the whole thing was speeded up. But um, other than that, uh, um, I think mistrust um, is a a big one. Um, And it has nothing, it's so sad. Um, um, Fazana was reading this article on vaccine hesitancy and they studied people and they noticed that since January to May, there has been an improvement and people are, one third more people are accepting of vaccines. And when they looked at their education level, they realized that 18 or high school, high school education and less were more willing to embrace the vaccine, but anybody who had a graduate education and were vaccine hesitant, refused to budge from their standpoint. So education has nothing to do with vaccine hesitancy. It seems it just shows a resistance, which I call it a blindness of the heart. Unfortunately, I don't find it rational
0: at all. Wow, That's yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And specifically addressing some of those rumors, um, a lot of people have said that like, who are vaccinated can still get sick and can still die. And they've like, you know, caught a lot of stories. Can you like address those rumors specifically? And like, like, to what extent is that actually true?
2: So when when these vaccines came to 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 be to be true for a respiratory infection, they were surprisingly excellent. I think that we in the in the medical community we were used to seeing the the flu shot as a not not, not as an excellent vaccine. You know, it could hit and miss. But when when the new mRNA vaccines came out and they have this efficacy of preventing the disease that was on the 90%, it it almost seemed like a miracle. There there are two reasons why patients can have what we call now breakthrough infections, which means that you're fully vaccinated, but you can still get the disease. And and I'd like to point out that even if, if the patient gets the vaccine, the amount of patients that need to be admitted is way less. So if you're vaccinated and you happen to get COVID, you, your chances of having to go to the hospital because of severe COVID are way less. And if you do make it to the hospital because it's a severe case, the chances of having to go to the ICU is also significantly decreased. And if it's such a bad case that the patient needs to be in the ICU, the chances of having to require a ventilator or a respirator for for support of the lungs is also incredibly reduced so even on the cases on, on the cases where patients have the infection after being vaccinated the outcomes are significantly better it has become a completely different disease the problem is who is the person that is susceptible and and where where are the pockets of susceptible patients you have you have always the younger patient population the healthy people that will make a very good response those patients will do very good they will make very high antibody titles they will be very well protected but not everybody makes the same you know um if you if you have medical problems the response might not be as good so in a disease that is so contagious or is that is as contagious as COVID is, where you can just be five, 10 minutes talking to someone and get the disease, this plays a major factor. So be the more people that you have vaccinated, the better, the, the more you can protect your, your patient population. So those stories of um, I, I got the vaccine and I still got COVID. They get told because patients just continues to be living and they, they felt very crummy. And and then they, they overcame their, their COVID disease. The mortality, the, the amount of patients that will die in that setting is very low. And for the most part, they're patients that have medical problems. So, so not every patient will make the same response. And that's where... In my, in my opinion, the younger patient population can make a whole lot for, for, for the ones that are above. So in a way, you're not only vaccinating for yourself, you're vaccinated so the virus has less less ways to find a person that is that is weakened in their immune system.
0: Yeah, so even though we may be seeing some cases, their, their response is much less because of vaccines.
2: Not everybody is as great or as, as good as making their, their immune response. It's very variable.
0: Okay, yeah. And I know there's like also, there's multiple variants of COVID and many people ask me this, like to what extent are, are these vaccines going to be effective against different variants of COVID?
2: So far, we have been under the influence of the Delta variant for quite a while. Um, I think since, since early this summer, it has been all Delta in, in Florida, and actually m- most part of the world, and, and the vaccine has continued to perform excellent. So I, I don't think at the moment, I don't have anything to say that is that is not behaving any less than excellent. Um, it is possible, you know, virus, they're supposed to, to, to be slowly changing and trying to be sneaky and find their way around vaccines. But so far that hasn't happened and it's very interesting seeing that despite the variants these vaccines kept holding high and, and and being very potent and very effective.
0: Great and we can also prevent the spread and like the development of these new variants uh, by vaccinations because vaccinations stop the spread of COVID as well. Is that not true? Okay
1: so yes of course uh, vaccines um, will continue to remain efficacious on all these variants. That is our hope. And I don't think that um, even with the Delta variant, um, it was a much more contagious virus, but um, we nev- we did not see, we only, I mean, literally 97% of the patients were unvaccinated. I'm sorry, what was your question, Fazan? Uh, tell me again.
0: Um, by adding, like, like vaccines also help to spread this. head Also, Sorry. stop yeah. the, help, the spread. Sorry, I I love, yes. Yeah. So this
1: is a very, very important point that it is in the RNA virus to mutate, and it evolves. So as long as there are people who are unvaccinated, the spread will continue, and variants will come. So if you want no more variants to come. Please get vaccinated because that definitely limits the spread of the virus and it definitely lowers the emergence of new variants.
0: Uh, thank you so much. And now that we've like talked a lot about like the boosters themselves, um, like talking about like how people actually are getting boosters, um, one of the main questions that came from a lot of people was. Um, When they get their boosters, should they get it from the same company, a different company? Um, And can they get it from different companies because of different availabilities in the areas that they live in?
2: This was a recent change or or update, I think, uh, from the CDC. I, I think the preference has always been that if you if you uh, had the Moderna vaccine, for example, and you started with it, that you would boost with the same company, and same with the Pfizer with Comirnaty. That's that's the name, believe it or not, they, they choose to call it that. Um, and uh, but right now we have a lot of real world data of people that got the mix, the match, what we call you. You get boosted with whatever, and they get they get really the same protection. And truthfully, they're both crafted the same way. It's it's the same technology. There's no reason why one or the other should be um, more potent. Um, I think that in the beginning, there, there was a lot of, well, this is how it was studied in the lab. We don't want to get away from or deviate from how it was studied in the lab. But the truth is there, there's really no reason why it should be one or the other. The better vaccine is the one that you have available in the moment that you need it rather than just, just the same company. So you can use either or. And the same goes for the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. Um, there's experience in the, in the United Kingdom on patients that got AstraZeneca, which is kind of like the twin the, the UK twin of Johnson & Johnson, and they got boosted with, with mRNA vaccines and they, they, they're pretty good. Cool.
0: And uh, to what frequency should we start getting boosters? Because I know like we've had them, we had like our initial vaccine and then we had like six months after that. Like, is it gonna be like a flu shot once every year? How, what is that gonna look like?
1: Um, so, you know, if you look at the CDC guidelines on boosters, But there is actually an age recommendation. So I don't think there's any boosters for your age group, Fezan. But, um, you know, 65 and above is who require boosters if they are six months out. And then um, if you have any medical um, issues such as, um, and believe it or not, obesity is, even if you don't have medical problems, obesity is very high on the medical risk for getting very ill if you get COVID. So if you have obesity, hypertension, diabetes, COPD, immune compromised status, cancer, malignancies, um, uh, so you should get the booster uh, in um, 18 and above any age group if you have these risk factors. So I think whether it is an annual thing or not, uh, remains to be seen. I think um, you will. We, as the pandemic evolves, we will know how long these antibody levels actually sustain us. Um, but at this time, uh, booster recommendation is um, limited to like the categories I mentioned: 65 plus and those with uh, comorbidities. Now, those who are exposed on the front lines, they can also get it. But the word "may" is used, not "should" get it. So, so far, we think that the 90% efficacy that the mRNA vaccines actually promised is going to last us longer than um, we expected. So I think if you are healthy and you don't have risk factors and you've had and you've taken two shots, I personally don't think that there's a need for a booster um, uh, yet. But let's see. As time evolves, CDC will give us more guidelines.
0: And taught, since we're like talking about like the guidelines and stuff, after we are get vaccinated fully, um, should we still be wearing masks, avoiding large gatherings? What are the guidelines? What precautions should we be following once we are vaccinated?
2: That's that's one of the hardest questions to answer because it really depends on how active is COVID in that particular area. When when there's very little activity, like right now. Florida is in a very good spot. Um, probably the the large gardens around the, outside of the buildings, or um, or with uh, in small groups, are perfectly fine. There there's still a recommendation of using it in, in means of transportation, as airplanes, buses, because it's a lot of people combined into a small place. Um, but it really depends on how active things are, are being. Um, I think that there is some room to relax at the moment, but it's one of those things that I always say, like if you can and you don't know the other person or, or if there has been an exposure for COVID and the person knows that they have been exposed, that they, they should avoid meeting other people in, in the meantime until they get they get tested. And sometimes... Um, for for the fun of having a good time people people can forget those things you know um, but right now we're I, I think at the best moment that florida has seen in a, in a long period of time we have a, a little bit more vaccination we we underwent a wave that was very very painful where we had a lot of losses on a young patient population um it's going to be hard for some people to get rid of the mask. Uh, for the immunosuppressed patients, I, I, w- I would say if you can and if you're comfortable, still use it if you don't know everybody that's going to be around you. But but this is the closest that we have been to, to go back to close to normal in a long time, in two years, almost two years.
0: And um, this is kind of kind of wrapping this up before we get into audience questions. Um, do you, is there anything you want to add about just the long-term future, what that's going to look like? And Dr. Clare, you just talked about that really well, but um, is there anything else that you want to add that you think is important as we go future, setting up these new systems, opening up schools, etc.?
2: Um, so
1: future, you know, I think we are, we are headed in a good, we are in a good place right now. We are, um, there's no new current variants going on. And I think uh, the vaccine hesitancy will take a little time, but I hope that we get to herd immunity. So um, I think as frontline healthcare workers, we had a lot of peace of mind when the vaccine came. So I think that peace of mind is now, you know, in the public as well. If you're vaccinated, you can begin to travel. You can begin to do things, and you can still use your best judgment. In you know, if you're going to a high community transmission, then you you use your public health prevention tools. You don't give up on those. You know, so if you if we can stay conscious. After having been through the pandemic, if we behave like we, it has taught us anything, then use your best judgment when you're traveling, you're going to indoor public gatherings, use your best judgment. I mean, uh, I think we can't repeat the preventative tools. They are The tools are there for you to use, and then the future should be safe for you. At the end of the day, the only person you can protect is you and your family. You know, that is who you want to protect. You can't take responsibility of the entire world, but you don't want to bring it home, and you don't want to infect unvaccinated friends and families. So I think if we are conscious of that and stay humble and pray to God to keep us safe, I think we are in a good place. I, I have a feeling that the worst is behind
2: us. I really do. I agree. I, I think the worst part already happened honestly think that these vaccines have been almost like a superpower. But would you like a superpower? Here you go, it's in this tube. Um, it is heartbreaking to see that there is so much vaccine hesitancy. I never imagined that a, a, a place that I, that I practice, like the U.S., that is, for me, uh, one of the, the most educated, or what it should be, one of the most educated in the world, would have such difficulty with with something that uh, for, for the foreigners like, like me, um, consider so natural. For, for us, vaccines are very natural. They, they happened when we were kids. Most of the times we didn't know that we were being vaccinated. Mom just took us to the doctor. Very easy, very done. So I, I, even though I think that the worst part is, is, is gone, from now on, having this wonderful tool Seeing a patient being very sick from COVID is just heartbreaking because it means a family that is gonna have a loss. It means someone that might be sustaining someone else. It means a mom is a brother, is a is a is a father, is a cousin, is someone that is important for someone else. And seeing that it's some that is something that can be prevented and, and minimized is 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 difficult for, for doctors. So if we have any hope of making life as similar as it was before is is through trying to get as many people vaccinated as possible.
0: Uh, thank you guys so much. Um, and that was all like the questions I got, uh, people submitted to me, but does anyone in the audience have questions that they wanna ask either of our two specialists here?
3: Yes, I'm, I'm Dr. Zedi, I want
0: to ask a few questions. Should I give you all the questions? Um, You can just ask them uh, one at a time and the doctors will take it. As they, yes. as they...
3: First of all, it's usually said that if you get two doses of, a, of the vaccine, you, there's less chance of hospitalization and less chance of death. But there have been reports, at, especially in Pakistan, where one of our relatives had two doses, but he still was admitted to the hospital. Unfortunately, he, had, he expired. So, how common is that? And the second is, that this source of infection, where it started? Has it been pinpointed yet? And if it has been pinpointed, what are the recommendations so that it, such a thing should not happen uh, all over again? So uh, And the third question is about the oral medications that has been approved in UK. Uh, has has it been started to be used, and is it efficacious? Thank you. Thank you. I'll take
0: that immunity.
1: I'll take that because it refers to Pakistan. So you know, I've been getting a lot of phone calls from a lot of family members from Pakistan about COVID, and you need to know that the messenger RNA vaccine. Uh, is not the one that they are getting over there. So they had the Sinovac and I think the Sputnik vaccine. So the Russian vaccine and the Chinese vaccines and their efficacy was much lower. So, you know, nothing has, can beat the efficacy of the messenger RNA vaccines, the Pfizer and the Moderna, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, they are very, their efficacy is in the nineties. So, uh, and we have seen it firsthand in the United States. That the uh, surge we had in July of last year uh, was, I mean, we didn't have a vaccine then. And the surge we had this year, um, the vaccinated people were 1% to 2%. The majority were younger, unvaccinated people. So we know that the efficacy of our vaccines is much better. So in Pakistan, unfortunately, there have been a lot of hospitalizations and deaths. Um, and then you know you can't compare apples with oranges. The healthcare system over there, um, you know, it has. Uh, you can imagine that the the healthcare system in the United States was overwhelmed with the Delta surge. How? What do you expect for a healthcare system in Pakistan, which is a third world country, which is already overwhelmed? So I think uh, there is also a lot of fear and. So many other psychosocial factors, financial factors. So, but the basic thing is that the vaccines.
4: <laughs> so,
1: the Sinovac is not as efficacious. I think it was at best. 50 to 60%, but I'll have to check those numbers. That was your first question. The second question was about the source. So I don't think at this time we have any doubt in our minds that it uh, started in Wuhan in that wet market. And if you don't know what a wet market is, it is where they, they, they serve meat. And um, so basically they have uh, a lot of exotic animals as well, which are wild animals. And uh, you need to understand that the coronavirus is very specific for being, um, you know, very common in animals. It's actually usually transmitted from animals to humans. So it was the perfect setting that this started in Wuhan in a wet market. I think by the time uh, the Chinese government told WHO that there was a problem, they had already closed the wet market. So um, um, at this time, we we know that this started in a wet market. And if you go back and look at the history of the previous SARS-CoV infections, they have started every time in a wet market, at least the two times that I know Um, Now, the third question that you had was about the oral medication. I was just reading about that. I don't think it's approved in the United States that I know of as yet. I think it's a five-day course in the UK that they have started. And it looks promising. But like everything else, we can't get ahead of ourselves um, until we try the medication here. And we have more information when we use it. Then we can know uh, how effective it is. But supposedly, we've heard good things about it. Um, it, uh, it looks like I was reading up the mechanism um, that it is an RNA polymerase. I mean, that's going to be scientific lingo. I'm going to cut that off. But basically, it prevents the virus from replicating. It prevents it from reproducing. Um, so, uh, you know, the main problem that I have with that medication is like, you know, if you have flu, if you don't take Tamiflu within the first few days, it's not going to do anything. So this is my main concern would be availability and then people realizing that they are sick and then getting tested and then coming to get the pill and then saying, oh, the pill doesn't work. So I think the timing of the pill is very important. So we'll see what the practical limitations or uh, benefits truly are for this oral medication. But at this time, we have felt so helpless in the intensive care unit that Anything which comes up is welcome to save people from coming to the ICU, which which is really very heartbreaking place. Um, I think those were the three
0: questions. Thank you so much. Yeah, that's really good. That's really good for clarifying that, Um, especially about um, vaccines and how that compares to different countries. Um, Does anyone else have any questions?
4: Can I ask two questions? Of course. My name is. Adi. My first question is: immunity after infection is long-lasting or immunity after vaccination? And the second question is: what are the long-term complications of COVID?
2: I think I can take that. Um, so so far, um, the the studies that have been that have been available. Has shown that actually, actually, vaccination gets a, a very, very impressive response. And when you compare the the response that patients get through the natural immunity, just getting the infection, it doesn't seem to be long lasting. Um, that's the reason why we recommend, even if you had COVID, please get vaccinated. It's it's gonna boost your your immune response and protect you even more in the future. Um, I don't want to get too technical as far as studies, but but it just seems to be qu- quite a difference. And the amount of, of patients that got infections after vaccines and the patients that got reinfections after getting COVID is it's quite different. So the vaccine continues to surprise. Um, there is more to, to be told uh, about this in the future. I, I, I'm sure that we will, we will know more. Um, but so far, it seems to be better, the vaccine, than, than, than the natural uh, obtained uh, immunity. And uh, the other question was, it was a vaccine, and can, can you remind me the second question? What are the
4: long-term complications of COVID?
2: So far, I have. It is very, uh, it's a small time to know the, the longer consequences of coronavirus uh, disease. I can tell you what, uh, what we're now calling the long holders. These are patients that are taking a long time to recover. And I am seeing a lot of uh, people that were very active, they were, they were uh, very useful members of society, and they were critically ill in the hospital. Um, some of them require intubation, some of them not really. And e- even now I am seeing patients of the initial wave, July last year, um, in the office with, with extreme fatigue, uh, sometimes shortness of breath. And we know that there is some lung damage that happens on, on it. Um, I know that the pulmonary, the, the lung doctors, our colleagues, they, they are seeing that in their clinics. Um, and it's still short, uh, we, we don't like longer terms, who, who knows where this, this hit in the body can, can take. I also had had a couple of patients that, it, it wasn't only the COVID, is the treatments that we, that we have to give patients when they are sick with coronavirus. Um, one of the drugs that we use uh, very liberally is, is steroids. To, to calm down the, the immune response. And that that has side effects. You know, it, the, the, the treatment that we are using also increases the risk of infections. So then they get complicated with infections. And I, I have a patient that had a problem with a bone on his hip um, going, uh, going bad just because of the high amount of steroids. So it's not only the disease, it, it's also the treatments that we use. Uh, but chronic fatigue and respiratory problems uh, are amongst the, hi- the, the highest. There's a lot of trauma early on in the pandemic um, when when the United States had to closed everything and nobody could visit their their loved ones. These patients were alone in the room for a long time. Um, it was only the nurses and us, the doctors going in. So that was a rough time for patients too. They, they, um, they still remember so there's there's a, a bit of ptsd that that comes with it um in our hospital in orlando health we have been we had tried to to be as open as possible on family visitations so families can be with the patients and and that helps with outcomes because having your loved one matters and and it's difficult uh initially it was very hard because we didn't have all the protective equipment we had to be very uh, sparing and, and careful with the use so the healthcare workers would have enough to take care of their patients. Um, I I am pretty sure that we will know more in the future of of, of the things, not only because of COVID, because of, of the things that we have been doing.
3: Uh, may I ask one more question? Uh, if one has received Three doses of uh, COVID vaccine and is in a immunocompromised state, and one wonders whether he has developed enough antibodies. Is there some way of checking the antibodies? Is it done routinely? Is it possible, or is it, or one should not worry about it? Um, so you
1: know, immunocompromised patients. Uh, um, are difficult patients because they are the ones who are uh, the most uh, likely to not mount a response. But um, I think there is data coming on now that with the third booster, there is definitely a boosting in the response. So um, I think I would favor that anybody who is immunocompromised, even if they've had three boosters, to continue to use the public health measures, such as a mask and um, social distancing and avoiding going to high transmission areas, because you you are definitely the vulnerable ones who we cannot uh, predict that even if you do have antibodies, whether you will... Um, Not get sick, you know. So, uh, you know, everybody um, who died in my ICU had antibodies when they died. So, whether these antibodies truly can save you um, is the question that we truly have. But having said that, there are um, antibody tests available. Some of them are not good. Some of them uh, are getting, we are getting, we are bringing it down to which tests because we've had a few patients who got the antibodies checked and they were negative, but we, when we repeated the anti-spike protein, IgG, they did have the thing. So it just depends on which lab you're going to. So you don't want to be misled. Um, So I would say um, that definitely, uh, you know, you can get your antibodies checked, but even if you have them, just please take your precautions. Secondly, you know, I had a colleague the other day, his brother, had the third booster and he was on a biologic, which are immunosuppressive medications and he got COVID, but he was an immune suppressed individual. So one thing which I would recommend for the immunosuppressed individuals, if you get COVID after the third booster, it it means I I can't predict that you won't die of it. It might still save you from death, but we we do have this option of the monoclonal antibodies um, so that is definitely an option, especially for your loved ones who are in the medical field to guide you as well to get within the first seven days, the Regeneron um, uh, that um, is available. Look at the nearest site um, and see. And if you get it within the first seven days, that is also prophylactic or preventative in saving you from death and a hospitalization. So immunocompromised patients, unfortunately, we cannot guarantee um, uh, 100% immunity, so you need to keep your guard. But I still feel that it will save you from death and um, hospitalization. And the numbers are very low uh, that we have lost uh, despite vaccine. And they have been immunocompromised. So that's uh, my recommendation.
0: And thank you. With, uh, yeah, thank you. And along those lines, with the monoclonal antibody treatments, um, some people propose those as like an alternative to vaccination. Is that true?
2: I will take that. Um, I think that the monoclonal antibodies are a are a very good resource for a specifically immunosuppressed patients, and the earlier, the better. But the problem that i have with that in just in general as an alternative to vaccination is that you really you really cannot get much of the vaccine after you have received the monoclonals because the monoclonals won't really allow the vaccine to to expose everything that it needs to expose to the body, and then the body to be able to, to get the immune response. It, it's not that the person is going to explode or anything, if you give them both things like that, that's not going to happen, but but you don't get for the next uh, two or three months after getting Regeneron, we we normally don't give the patients the COVID vaccine because they won't make too much of our response. So. As a regular practice and to surrogate vaccines, I would not use it, and especially not on the young patients. Young patients, you're vaccinated, you are way better. I would use it, however, how, how the doctor just mentioned on a patient that is very immunosuppressed, that had the third booster and encounters the, themselves in contact with a COVID patient and tests positive, I will be very quick add that to the battery of things that the patient has as an additional protection. But because of the vaccine being so wonderful and incredible and mega super good, even in the immunosuppressed, because we, we have seen that on transplant patients, that there is more than antibodies that, that meets the, the vaccine. There's, there's a whole lot other part of, of the body that is working that we can't really measure with antibodies. So you don't want to take that away from, from the patients. You, you want to go by the gold, by the, the most better or the better one before, and then use this if you really need to. That, that, is, that is my take on the, on the regeneral uh, cocktail.
1: Thank you so much for that. It is not an alternative to the vaccine. Yeah, that was a very important point. Yeah, thanks.
0: Uh, any other questions
4: from the chat? Uh, I have a question uh, regarding the boosters. Uh, how long do you think the booster uh, protection lasts?
1: Um, I think it should last another six months to a year. Because you know, it's the same thing that you had before. So if we have evidence that that lasted six to eight months and has started waning, then I think with the booster, I I hope that it goes on for another six to eight months. Personally, I think we are so um, early in the pandemic that five years from now we will know, and this is what I, I think, I can't prove it right now, it's too soon, that they actually last longer. That is what I feel because if, CDC has only recommended the booster for 65 and above, and those with health conditions. So I think for the rest of the population, it is still a very high efficacy. And we don't even know how long the first series is going to last. The booster is out there, but it doesn't mean that the first two are not working. Anybody who's unvaccinated is the most vulnerable. And those who are vaccinated with the two shots are still protected. Please don't confuse that just because the booster option is available, everybody should go get a booster. I I really think it's for those who are more vulnerable and high risk. I think the first two shots are still working um, for Uh. those who are younger and Uh. issues.
4: A kind of, it's very specific to my own situation that I got a Johnson & Johnson single shot. Then I, like last year and few months down, I still got a big breakthrough infection. So now I got a booster. So my question is like,
1: I'm good now. Um, So, you know, that is a very interesting question, Samira. So, you know, I actually... um... I'm a fan of natural immunity. I know there was a question earlier. Um, Thank you for bringing it up. So what I can tell you is that people who have died in my ICU, you know, no one told me that they had COVID twice. And I, I take a very detailed history and I ask them, I ask them why they don't take the vaccine. I ask them, you know, how many people are sick in their home and how did they catch it and everything. And no one has died who said, I had COVID before, I was in the hospital, I came out and then I'm here again and I'm going to die. So natural immunity really is the, I mean, what are we basing a vaccine on? If there was no such thing as natural immunity, how do you make a vaccine? You, you model it from the natural immunity. So I do feel that if you had a natural booster, From getting the actual infection, it has definitely boosted your immune system. Now, I don't know your specific medical risks and, um, uh, you know, if there are any other risk factors that you need to consider or who is around you and if uh, there is. So I think um, so far, um, as far as Johnson & Johnson is concerned, they are recommending a booster, but I still think it's for those who are uh, in that age group, I don't know what their recommendations are as far as Johnson and Johnson is concerned. So far, they claim that one shot was enough. So I think it depends on your own comfort level. I am I have uh, you know reached that point that I have realized I can't make anybody a believer in anything. But I think you can educate people one to one and see what is your own because you know evolving in your fear is something which COVID has taught us, and so. We have all evolved, you know, we are less overreacting now. We are calmer, the transmission is low. Unless you're going uh, into a COVID room without a mask in, or into high transmission areas, I think you should be okay, Samira. Thank
0: you. Um, and that, Thank you so much. And the question from earlier was about vaccination for small children, especially those for less than five years old. Um, what do you think the timeline is going to look like? that? Should we be vaccinating uh, kids who are less than five years old? What should that look like? Look like.
2: I think that just, uh, so this is for children less than five years old? Yeah. Less than five years old. Because it was just now on uh, the, the, the CDC and the FDA approved the vaccine for the 5 to elevens. Um, it, it, the difference on this, on this children was really the dose. Um, I think this is one of those few times that we have changed the dose based on age. For, for most of the vaccines, uh, we really use the same dose for children than for adults. It's the first time that we make an exception, and this, this was driven by some of the side effects. Uh, that the mRNA vaccine had in the in the younger patient population. Um, the for the pre-babies, now I, I have to disclose, I am an adult infectious diseases doctor. I don't I don't do pediatrics infectious diseases. I am very close to the pediatric ID doctors because they more recently they started having some cases in younger patients and they they were not very familiar with that because kids don't get as sick as, as adults uh, do. Um, but there is another decrease on the dose that they are studying. It seems like they're using even, even a smaller dose to get them vaccinated. And the, the idea is to, to try to find the perfect dose for, for each uh, age group that will, that will give them the most protection without side effects or, or undesirable uh, uh, sequela. Uh, I don't know what how long that part is is going to be taken. It's always difficult for me to to see if if a baby is going to be five years in five years old in one week. Look, what is the the difference? You know, do I really have to wait? That's something that I would defer on the pediatrician or on the on the infectious diseases uh, pediatrics on on them. But they are decreasing the dose. To, to give you a little bit of, of numbers, and I don't want to get too technical, but for for community, for Pfizer, the dose for adults is 30 micrograms. And for the, the kids between five and seven is only 10. And they're looking at three now for, for the smaller baby. So I think until, until those studies don't come from, it's, it's going to be difficult to know, well, first, what dose should we put them? Do we do a higher dose or or we just try the smallest and we wait. I think that is there's, there's still a little bit, some uncertainty to, to decide what would I use on patients. Thank you so much. Um, does anyone you. else have any questions? Um, can I ask? Of course. Um, I've heard that boosting too early could interfere with the immune systems learning process. And actually, like boosting too soon could be counterproductive. So, is there a, like an optimal timeline as recommended by the CDC to wait before getting the booster shots? Um, yeah, that's that's the question.
1: So, I I kind of uh, don't understand the question um, as such. How can boosting too early um, if I understand your question correctly, the boosting someone early is going to be counterproductive. Okay, so this is, the statement has to be kind of, uh, you know, evaluated. Um, first of all, what is early? So, you know, when we had the Delta variant, uh, there were a lot of uh, breakthrough infections. So, you know, we don't want people to get breakthrough infections. So six month is the time period that was recommended for the Pfizer vaccine by the CDC. And so six months is like a, you know, it's not you can't take it in five weeks or you can't take it in seven weeks. It's just a generic thing. Um, What happened is, it's an interesting piece of history that I want to tell you. What happened in July is, and you can count December to July is about seven months. What happened is that Israel started having a lot of breakthrough infections. And that is when this whole, um, you know, the whole demand for booster came in. And so I can't imagine that they had vaccines in December. I think everyone pretty much got the vaccine around March. So you can imagine some of these people maybe had immune issues and couldn't mount a response. So when you are recommending a booster, you're trying to make a general recommendation which depends on person to person. Uh, So some people who don't have antibodies may be actually benefited or who are vulnerable or immunocompromised from getting the booster at let's say five months. So there's this counterproductive thing. It doesn't make sense. Uh, so what is the outcome that you're looking for? The, you know, the only thing the booster does is to boost your immunity. So there, there's nothing that it's counterproductive in that uh, regard. Um, Dr. Kyoto, would you like to add? What do you think?
2: I I agree, I don't think it's counterproductive. I think, if anything, timing, it's always difficult to predict the waves. Um, I think Moderna mentions for for immunosuppressed to at least be four weeks from the second dose. It's like the minimum period. Um, And and I think Pfizer makes recommendation for that to wait at least four, four weeks from the second shot, not earlier than that. So if early is Within that month, after getting the second shot, you're still under pretty much the influence of of the second shot. I, I don't know that counterproductive would be the the word that I would use, but useful maybe. I don't know that it would be that useful at that at that point. But um, and they do mention that the, the the booster should be around the six months mark, but. If we were about to, if we didn't have the wave that we had, and we are on the like, hindsight is 2020 at this point, a booster prior to the wave would have been better, even if it's on the five months month mark. I don't know if this makes sense, you know, time compared to where when the 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 community transmission is starting to rise 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 that that would be when i i would start you know i know it's not 5 months but this looks like it's coming and and maybe there this this would be the moment because by the moment that you're ready on the peak of the wave you're, you're you're already a little bit too too late so uh, there's a little bit of like playing with the community transmission that goes into into that but i agree i don't think it's counterproductive um Maybe on that four weeks, I don't know there's an additional benefit of using it.
0: Uh, Thank you, Ash, for clarifying that. Um, Is there any more questions?
4: Can I ask one question, please? Of course. What is the difference between the Moderna vaccine and Pfizer vaccine? If a person took two doses of Moderna vaccine, can he take the Pfizer vaccine as a booster or he should take Moderna vaccine as a booster?
1: So no difference. Um, they're both different pharmaceutical companies, but the, the, the messenger RNA technology is the same for both. So these are messenger RNA vaccines. Now, if you go get a flu shot, you know, we do have a variety of flu shots. So it's just like that. The, uh, the mechanism here is they are both messenger RNA vaccines and they work the same way. So uh, there has been some difference in the way they are given. The one difference is that Pfizer is first shot and then 21 days. The other difference is for Moderna, it's four weeks. And then for the booster, it is six months for the Pfizer. and I think Moderna said eight months. Now, I think uh, we had mentioned before in the talk that you can mix and match. If you've had Moderna, you can take the Pfizer booster. If you had Pfizer, you can take the Moderna booster. Um, I know one thing, if you've had the Moderna, I think the booster is half the dose. So um, this is for if you've had it before. So these are just a few differences. Otherwise, uh, technically, they are about the same.
0: Um, thank you so much. Uh, any other questions?
5: I just uh, um, quickly wanted to uh, thank the doctors. Um, this has been quite interesting and um, thank Faz um, for this um, opportunity to just sit in. I'm, I'm a teacher and listening to the, these conversations. Um, I teach a, a course in human geography. Um, and one of the concerns that I have about this particular virus and viruses in general, um, because they don't know national borders, is that there hasn't been enough of a response to,
3: uh,
5: can you hear me? Um, to um, uh, mount a significant global response um, um, with the wealthier countries making a even bigger Um, attempt to try to help um, immunize with decent vaccines, because I will tell you that the Sinovac vaccine is being used in Southeast Asia. Um, uh, The wealthy don't get that vaccine. Um, They get the RNA, but the general rank and file are given the uh, Sinovac or the Sputnik. And I, and I, I don't want to turn this into a national, um, you know, uh, this country does it better than this country, but I don't know. I do think there's an efficacy difference um, even within uh, the ones that we have available in this country, um, and the vaccines don't know borders. And, they, and as, as long as we have so many people that are unvaccinated, this is going to be an issue. And I know that as doctors, this is not something you can actually really address because it's a, more of a political question. Um, I am also reading about re- reverse zoonosis um, with this disease, um, and particularly in deer Um, which I think, um, which should be alarming, um, because it suggested that this disease could stay around for a very long time. And I just would like to just have you comment. I know, again, um, as medical doctors, um, you probably scratch your head at the irrationality of our species um, when it comes to some, some, some things that occur um, um, within our own rank and file. Um, And I, as I watch the news, I'm scratching my head all the time, but Um, I am worried about the the need to respond on an international level uh, to COVID. And are you concerned about the incidences um, of reverse zoonosis, where this is now um, infecting animals?
1: I think I will have to admit my ignorance uh, could you tell me what reverse zoonosis is? I, I, don't know. I, I may be
5: I may be mispronouncing reverse zoonosis. The idea that the oh. disease is moving back from human now into animal population, very specifically deer. Um, they've been discovering this in deer, um, and this has just okay. recently come uh, to light.
1: Well, thank you for teaching me something. Okay, all I can tell you is we haven't had any pet. Um, transmissions that I think were of any uh, significance, and you know, there's so much, uh, so many dogs and cats in the U.S. So I don't think at this point we are. It's a, it's a significant concern. I mean, I, I mean, I, and we don't really interact with deers, but I think we would really have to get more data on is it really killing them or. How, uh, what is the severity of illness in that. But that uh, is an interesting um, view because, I mean, it started off with an animal to the human and, you know, everything is a circle of life, so you never know what happens tomorrow. Um, as far as your geography point is concerned, you know, that's a very, very uh, important point. And thank you for bringing that up because, uh, you know, the Delta variant actually started in India and then, uh, you know, because of the global travel that we cannot... Uh, um, um, lockdown. It ended up in the United States, and then it everything spreads in two seconds because of the traveling. So uh, wherever there is uninhibited spread and unvaccinated third world countries or first world countries, even uh, you can see we are also not fully vaccinated. This transmission will continue, and the variants can pop up in all these different places. Unfortunately, you know this uh, like food water and other basic uh, necessities of life vaccine seems to be more of a luxury than a um, and a privilege uh, than uh, something which uh, is being equally distributed so we are painfully aware about the inequality and we will probably um, continue to see this uh, lingering you know in some area of the world um, because i don't uh, think i mean i would love it would be utopian to want the whole world to be vaccinated and saved. But I think we will continue to have um, this um, distribution inequality and um, half the rest of the world is probably going to um, continue to have to deal with it. I think I'm not the one, but the World Health Organization is really trying to uh, increase the vaccine distribution to these countries. I know that for six, seven months, even Pakistan just had Sinovac and Sputnik. And you're right, only the rich can afford the messenger RNA and it's not even free there. So um, unfortunately, this is not something that, I mean, we can control, we can only educate. And um, it's, it's more of a political thing that it has to be made a priority Um, But, you know, one thing I would tell uh, you, uh, people in the third world, because I come from a third world country, you know, there there are so many issues of daily living that people are exhausted with, uh, you know, they don't, it's a very different attitude over there. They would love to get these vaccines and uh, to protect themselves because they really can't lose even one day of their income and stay home. It is, it kills the whole family. But I think um, it has to be politically and government-driven to take care of their people.
5: Thank you.
0: Um, any other questions? or?
4: Can I ask one more question, please? Yeah, of course. Uh, how much time it will take to finish this disease from the world?
2: That is the hardest question that, that I have ever gotten asked, and I, I'm going to include everything that my daughter has ever asked me before. Um, I I I don't know that I can answer uh, that appropriately, and and that goes back to to the recent question on on the rest of the world, the United States, and and when we can all get immunized, and and unfortunately, I because of the way that coronavirus are made and how they jump from animals to humans. I wouldn't be surprised if they're liking to to go from humans to to, to pets as well. Um, I don't have a very good answer. I I can just tell you, at least at the moment, how can we best protect ourselves and and do our part for for the rest of of humanity. Uh, The problem with a disease like this is that nobody is really born with with defenses against this virus um, in other infections. Sometimes you, you see patients that one of them is infected, but the other person that is very close to them, they never get that infection. COVID is not like that. If you if you never got COVID and if you are not vaccinated and you're exposed to the COVID virus, you will get the disease. It's a, it's a very infectious bug. Um, when will it finish? Well, when, when we are all, it, either vaccinated or recently have COVID and there's no animals to give it back to us again I don't, I don't have a good answer I'm so sorry
0: Thank you everyone so much um, for being here and especially thank you Dr. Simon Boss and Dr. Uh, for being here They've, they're like really busy they have a lot of stuff to do with their time so I really appreciate you guys um, answering some of the questions that uh, we've had so thank you so much everyone So thank you so much for listening it was a great event, and thank you so much to everyone who was there, and the two doctors, Doctor Simon Boss and Doctor Patricia Quoto, for answering all these questions and taking time out of their day. Um, again, if you have any questions, make sure to leave them in the form below. And this was Infectious. I'm Rosefa Zaidi, and I'll see you next time.